Well, good day, uh, history lovers, and welcome to the latest uh, History Ireland Head School. This is our, our third online head schools. And today we're looking at the Connacht Rangers Mutiny in 1920, 1970 and 2020. On the 28th of June 1920, five men from C Company of the 1st Battalion of the Connacht Rangers led a mutiny in Jalandhar, Punjab, in protest against martial law in Ireland. Following their surrender a few days later, 88 mutineers were court-martialed, of whom 77 were imprisoned. The leader, James Daly, was executed. The imprisoned mutineers were released in 1923, returned to Ireland, and in 1936 were granted state pensions. In 1970, the remains of James Daly and two other mutineers were repatriated from India. To discuss the complex web of issues arising from the events themselves and their commemoration both in 1970 and today, we are joined by uh, Cecile Gordon of uh, Military Archives, uh, Kate O'Malley and John Gibney, both of the Royal Irish Academy's Documents on Irish Foreign Policy series, and finally, uh, Brian Hanley of Trinity College, Dublin. And uh, this uh, hedge school is supported by the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Culture, Heritage and the Gaeltacht. Okay, lads, just to get started, uh, Kate, maybe I'll go to you. Um, could you just give us a general broad brush idea of what the British setup was in India in, the 1920, in 1920? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Tommy. Um, I'm sure many of your readers and listeners are more than familiar with the Amritsar massacre. It's you know, an obvious starting point, but it shouldn't be the focal point when you think about just how unsettled India was in 1920. Amritsar had happened, obviously, in the previous year, in April 1919. But simultaneously, there was a, a huge peasant movement um, in the form of Kisan Sabhas being uh, established throughout the country. Um, and then in parallel with this, you also had a lot of uh, industrial workers establishing political, very politicised uh, unions. And uh, in 1920, in fact, the All India Trade Union Congress was, was formed under, under the leadership of Lala Lajpat Rai. And to give you a sense of the scale, there would have been 200 strikes in the first six months of 1920 alone nationwide, involving over a million people. So it might give you a sense of how small the mutiny was and the bigger scale of unrest that was going on in India at the time. What sort of troop numbers did the British have in India? And of course, many of those would have been native sepoys. But what what, what was the, the, the British military imprint? I know we're talking about maybe four to five hundred thousand, very depleted in the post First World War period. And that was it's another really important uh, factor, which is imperial defence, which was stretched. I mean, 1919 to 20 in British imperial history is really a crisis of empire. You don't have unrest just in India. You have it in Ireland, as we all know, also in Egypt, in Iraq. And the British are also negotiating a treaty in 1920 with the Afghans after the Third Afghan uh, War. So um, the, the troops would have been depleted. But in terms of Irish numbers, uh, a, a, an accurate enough figure from, say, 1912, which would have been pre-war, would have been about 22,000 Irish people serving in the British Army, the British Indian Army. Um, so not as significant as it would have been throughout the 19th century when Irish men would have probably made up about half of the of the uh, British or European Indian Army. Okay, John, give me go to you on this just about just to, to flesh out a little bit the the, the Irish uh, involvement in India, which as Kate said was always uh, considerable. There were one of eight uh, infantry regiments in the British Army that recruited from the island of Ireland. The regiment could trace its origins back to units recruited in the west of Ireland by the Earl of Clan Rickard in the 1790s. And in a way, this kind of cuts to the heart of one of the issues here, because you can't really, 
when Irish Catholics were let into the British, or when Catholics were let into the British Army at the end of the 18th century, which essentially meant Irish Catholics, it was due to a crisis of empire in um, what was then British North America. And in a way, the very expansion of the British Army and the role of Irish soldiers within it, I mean, essentially, wherever the British Empire went in the 19th century, there was an Irish presence of some kind. And indeed, wherever the British Empire has been established throughout its history, there's been an Irish presence of some kind. What I mean by that can be, I suppose, businesses, commerce, but also at an official level, and particularly in terms of the role of the military. Um, I mean, by the 1830s, something 42% of the British Standing Army was Irish-born. And while that overall number... um, and proportion with the decline throughout the 19th century, it would have had a very, very significant presence. And a lot of those soldiers would have been stationed in India throughout the 19th century. Um, when the Connacht Rangers were established in 1881, they would have seen service throughout Africa, um, in Egypt and the Sudan. Uh, they also would have served in the Western Front and other theatres of war during the First World War. And the point you'd make here with this is that we're talking about a singular event, a mutiny of Irish soldiers within the British Army. But the point I'd have to make is that... Um, the very presence of Irish soldiers within the British Army and imperial service, that, that was nothing new, despite the fact that we're looking at an unusual event. But the norm, you could say, for Irish military service in that time would have been within the British Army, and that would have been largely scattered throughout the British Empire. And given the significance of India within that empire, I think the role and presence of um, Irish soldiers within the British Army, it wasn't unusual. And what we're talking about is an exception, perhaps, rather than the rule. But that's a- just a quick, a quick word on the name, right? Because because this crops up in the film Black Forty Seven, the, the, the name Ranger. Because in Black Forty Seven, they give the the impression that the Connacht Rangers are Rangers, you know, uh, guys who track people and so on. That's not the case, is it? Rangers just where does that come from? I've no idea. As opposed to you know, regiment. Itself, or, but Ranger is yeah, yeah, okay, Fusiliers. You know, the other the other words are used. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. No, it has no particular significance. They're a regular British British Army unit. Yeah. Yeah, okay. regular, a regular infantry unit. I don't, I don't know where the name came from in that sense. Now, am I right, Kate, in assuming then that this force of 400,000 odd, they're mainly engaged in a policing role at this stage, given what you've just said about the turmoil in India? Yeah, but also the kind of um, more on standby. And I suppose that's the other issue, that kind of lack of action in, on the part of the actual army where they were, or the actual rather regiments where they were at that particular time. <laughs> they, they were there in anticipation of further unrest, especially after Amritsar. So, um, no, there would have been a police force. There would have been a lot of Irish in the police force as well. It's important to mention the ICS. It's important to mention railway and administrative service. There were Irish people active throughout the sustaining of the of, the, of British India at this time. But um, a lot of the soldiers that were placed there were there as more or less backup and reserves in case further trouble erupted. Um, hence their deployment in 1919 after, after the Amritsar massacre. Okay, well, Kate, maybe just give us a, a quick um, narrative of the of the mutiny because this is something that crops up later in in, in regard to their pensions. You know, like mm. what actually kicked it off? What, you know, what were the motives of the, the guys involved? Okay, well, just to give a, a brief background, I suppose location is important in in both garrisons that became involved as well. And that's, I, I think it's important for your listeners to be aware of that. So the Rangers arrived in October 1919, and um, where where it began was in Jalandhar, which is in the uh, Punjabi plains. And I, I know this is brought up a lot, and we can talk about some of the different uh, historical takes by various authors in due course if we want. But there is no doubting, I've been to India, I don't know if many of you have, but it was a long time ago now, but there's no doubting that June and July, when everything kicked off in, in the Punjab, everything's tipping 
46, 48 degrees Celsius. It's insane. It's really, really hot, very difficult to manage. And a lot of people talk about the fact that the Connacht Rangers that got involved in the mutiny were had had active service before, but many were new recruits. So this would have been quite difficult for them to come to terms with. Then in contrast, the other station, Salon, which is in Himachal Pradesh, is up on the hills. It's en route to Simla. So it's, it's, it's relatively cooler. So anyway, so they're deployed and they're there in October 1919. And then on the 28th of June, what happened is that some men who were stationed at Dillon, they're in uh, Wellington Barracks, as it was called, basically put down their arms, um, ostensibly in reaction to letters they had received home, hearing about um, atrocities that were being carried out here. Uh, family, very specific family letters, apparently, although Again, the evidence for this isn't overwhelming. You know, there's no particular uh, incident. There's lots of incidents that are, are referred to in some of the letters. Maybe Cecile and Brian can give us some detail on that later. But this is the basic rationale for putting down their arms. But they put them into the armory and they had a guard uh, mind their arms, which I think is a significant point. They, they didn't want local natives, so to speak, to get access to the, those arms. That's another kind of crucial point. And then they sent emissaries to the other garrisons, especially to Salon, uh, where uh, there was a kind of a, a trickle effect. They also decided to put down arms. And then a few days later, on the 1st of July, a number of men there decided, no, we're going to go back and, and kick off and, and, and get our arms back from the guards. And that's when kind of the mutiny or the action, so to speak, took place. Um, and one of the guards uh, opened fire, killed two people and wounded another. And one of those is famously, obviously, James Daly. Um, but it was quashed very quickly. Um, British loyal troops, uh, possibly Irish as well, were then deployed, took over both garrisons. And really relevant as well to, to, to point out is that there was a third garrison, uh, Juto, which was also in the foothills of the Himalaya, that, that mountains that, that didn't get involved. Emissaries have been sent to them, but they remained loyal. That's your, it's, 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 it's a relatively small event. Uh, tricolors were put up flagpoles. There is evidence of Sinn Féin pamphlets where would you get a, a tricolor? You know, in yeah, the you make it, it exactly, Brian. Yeah, and apparently there's a story that they went to some local uh, cotton merchants who actually made it, made made the tricolors for them. Uh, but there is evidence of one Sinn Fein pamphlet, perhaps that was doing the rounds that could have come in in the post unchecked. But in terms of motives, I mean, you could spend the next hour talking about motives and talking about how people have disputed or argued about the motives initially. And the first kind of histories to emerge, those by Sam Pollock and T.P. Kilfeather, a very straightforward narrative, um, uh, politicised as it would have been in that time, in, in that context. That was when the demand for the repatriation of James Daly's body was happening. This was 69 when they were published. They just simply say Irish nationalist you know, motivations and, and that's it. And then you have Anthony Babington, who famously is a military historian, says, no, there's issues to do with um, you know, command order. Uh, lack of action, the, the soldiering narrative, if you will. And then more recently, you have Michael Silvestri's take, and he basically says that there's a middle way here. It's a mix of both. And I think this is the fairest way to look at it, because what you're dealing with at that time are soldiers who perhaps in real time, if you think about it, are actually coming to terms themselves with the path that they, they are on in, in, with the backdrop of what is happening in Ireland. So some of them would have been definitely motivated by that news. Others, perhaps like, say, Miranda, the Liverpoolian, you know, this is a bit of crack, like, you know, let's get involved, yeah. perhaps. Um, and the heat and, and the fact that there had been uh, a certain amount of disgruntlement amongst them about pay. So I think it's just this perfect storm. And I think their motives then 
their motives for joining the army, for getting involved in the mutiny, and then later some of their individual motives for getting involved in the campaigns that happened at home. They're all a mixed bag. There's no straight answer to any of these questions. Cecile, does the the pension files throw any light on this, on the detail of what happened, the motivations? Uh, A little bit. They tell us a few things um, about through key documents throughout a different series. And I tried to search for, I went searching for uh, per, first person accounts, if I could find, you know, something uh, very fleshy. And about the mutiny itself, there's a few things of interest in the admin series, in the departmental files, there are um, copies of the proceedings of the Court of Inquiry, uh, which uh, assembled in the, in, uh, at Solon in July 1920, for the purpose of investigating and reporting the death of Private uh, Sears and Smith. Um, and there are some accounts, for instance, from uh, Lieutenant uh, uh, C.J. Walsh, who was at the time of, uh, of, uh, of the action, if you will, uh, he was an officer in charge of an armed guard mounted on the magazine. Uh, and he explains how, how, how things went. Um, and then Lieutenant uh, T, uh, D.T. Sorry, McQueenie, uh, who was sitting, he says he was sitting on the veranda of the officer's mess at the time uh, when it all kicked, uh, kicked off. And both of them uh, explain how um, how they were positioned, where they were compared to one another. They both uh, explained that they fired on the mutineers after having cautioned them uh, several times. Um, and both also report that they saw three men on stretchers and later heard that two had died uh, and then one was uh, was injured. So it adds a little bit of what we know about the deceased as well, because the court's decision declares as well that the shooting of the soldiers was justifiable on account of their uh, mutinous, uh, quote here, mutinous behavior in attacking the magazine uh, with uh, naked bayonets and in refusing to halt when challenged. In other words, their death is caused by their own misconduct, which has ramifications for the award of pensions later on. Um, uh, One uh, wounded soldier was Eugene uh, Egan, uh, that's his name, and he's mentioned one of the, the statements in the proceedings of the Court of Inquiry. Um, and he claims uh, a wound pension because he got uh, he got injured in the chest during the attack. So we have an account on uh, from the, the the lieutenants who were at the magazine defending the magazine, and we have also an account from the people who were attacking with with Eugene Egan. Um, and he said, "I was wounded in the right chest when attacking the magazine at Solong on the first of July, 1920." 60 of us marched to capture the magazine. I was in the front. We were armed with bayonets. The rifles were in the magazine. We were called on to halt, but when we kept on the guard, when when we kept on, the guard opened fire, and I was hit with a revolver bullet. So it explains everything and and how he went to the hospital, and then only him. His story is also interesting. Like John was saying, he was in France in 1917. He got a shrapnel of a machine gun in his uh, in his shoulder. So his story is uh, is uh, by itself uh, interesting. And I just want to mention a handwritten letter, which is on file, on the file of William Daly's um, uh, story. William Daly is this, the brother of James Daly, who was executed in November 1920. So he is, is uh, in Jolandor while his brother was at Solon. Um, and William says, I was one of the men who started the mutiny. Before were Lally, Sweeney, Gogarty and Hayes. And then he explains how they came up with the plan, how I thought about it and how it happened. And at the end of the letter, I like that because it's a bit more insightful. And he explains that the word went, uh, the word went to the detachment in Solon. And when my com- uh, then my comrades told me how deeply James, uh, my brother, was implicated and that he would be shot, I was advised to keep cool, 
try and get away with it if possible, as one in the family was quite enough. Um, so, so you get little bits like, like that that are very good. And then uh, more in the admin files, you would find um, a lot more of correspondence to the department from the relatives, uh, from the survivors, the ex-members of the Connaught Rangers, uh, and, and political representation as well. Uh, uh, you know, all part of the campaign to uh, obtain pensions rights comparable to, uh, to other units uh, of, of men out there. And you get okay, a bit more about their motives as well and why, why they join and how they saw their, their action. We might, we might come back to that uh, later, Cecile. But yeah. Brian, can I bring you in here? Let, let's switch the action out from India to Ireland. Right? Because, OK, this is a fairly small event in itself, right? But I'm assuming that in the context of 1920, both in India and, you know, with the, with the War of Independence beginning to kick off big time in Ireland, that this, is, this became a major event. Like, how soon did it take for, for war to get back to Ireland? And what was the reaction? Early July, the national press are covering the events and the nationalist newspapers like the Irish Independent Freeman's Journal do put it down to news of oppression from Ireland. Um, that soldiers had received information from Ireland at what is referred to by the soldiers as well as Prussianism. And again, that's significant because um, and that term is used in Britain, particularly during the war, as an example of what Britain was fighting against. And British opponents of the war in Ireland often used that term, Prussianism, in reference to British uh, military repression in Ireland itself. Some of the soldiers used that term too. But it's seen as a rebellion on behalf of people in Ireland, essentially. And in the British press, there's a degree of alarm about it. Firstly, they're surprised because the British press reports tend to emphasise that Irish regiments have a good reputation for loyalty. Can I just interject there? I mean, what's unusual about the, the, this mutiny is there's so few of them, really. Just my non-expert uh, view of this. I mean, that's one of the things that, that's amazing about this is that the Irish do seem to be loyal, even even those who take a different stand later, Tom Barry's and so on. You know, any comment on that? Yeah, well, I think there's there's a couple of different contexts, and one would be why you would join the British Army at particular points. I mean. The Rangers' um, mutiny can't really be separated, as Kate said, from the position of the British military as a whole in 1920. You're talking about an army that had been 3 million strong in 1918 and is now down to 370,000 across the globe. And the British military class, people like Sir Henry Wilson, are very worried about, is that army going to be able to maintain order? I mean, at the time of the mutiny, another part of the Connacht Rangers were in Silesia. The Munster Fusiliers were in Egypt. The Leinsters were in another part of India where there's a rebellion in 1921, the Malabar Rebellion and so on. And a lot of what you find with professional soldiers, I mean, you've, you've a number of the mutineers who had served in the First World War, a number of them born in Britain itself of Irish backgrounds. And also you have the complication with all the Irish regiments is that by the end of the First World War, over half the soldiers in Irish regiments weren't Irish. Because during the First World War, there's a whole wave of transfers. People end up in different regiments because they've been wounded or, or been moved around and so on. So there's all these kind of complications, which you know means that an Irish regiment is not 100% Irish. It's certainly not 100% Irish-born. Its officer class are often usually from Anglo-Irish backgrounds and tend to be unionist in politics. And then also soldiers themselves, in every war, what you tend to find, unless there's a complete breakdown, for example, like in the Russian army in 1917, soldiers are intensely loyal to their families. their families, Brian. And, uh, yeah, uh, you know, if there's a yeah, long tradition of service, yeah. that, that's a tough decision to make, to yeah. break with that family allegiance. So they, they tend to be disdainful of abstract ideas, no matter, you know, even king and country 
or nationalism. It's mm. always, who are you fighting for? Well, I'm fighting for my friends. Uh, now, yeah. in the case of Daly, that's interesting because Daly's family were steeped in British military tradition. You know, he had brothers in the British Army and so on. Um, there is, and this is, again comes back to Kate's argument and Kate's point about the different interpretations of the rising. It, it, the mutiny wouldn't have happened without what was going on in Ireland, I don't think, because the, the mutineers do adopt very quickly the uh, paraphernalia of Irish republicanism. And there is evidence that some of that had been circulating. And indeed, you know, there's there's anonymous letters in the camp from Sinn Féiners of the Connacht Rangers and so on. So some of them definitely had imbued some of these ideas. Within the British military itself, even though the Irish regiments had been largely loyal, there's intense suspicion about them. By 1918 in France, for example, a lot of British officers are saying things like, I'm probably going to be shot by these guys before I'm shot by the Germans because the anti-conscription campaign in Ireland causes great resentment in Britain. And the British army is very aware of a changing mood in Ireland itself. Now, that doesn't always come true to their soldiers, but certainly they fear it well. They, they fear it will. So... The British are fearful that the Connacht Rangers mutiny is, you know, the beginning of something bigger. Indian nationalists see it as significant because it means maybe the British military are beginning to break down. And if Irish soldiers can mutiny, then what about the much larger numbers of Indian and Sikh and other soldiers in India itself? So, you know, that's and Indian nationalists do publicise the news of the mutiny then and they see it as significant too. Okay, can I bring you in, in on that? I mean, are we fooling ourselves to think that, that this small event featured at all in, in the minds of Indian nationalists? Well, as Brian said, there was a certain amount of coverage initially in India. There, there, there were uh, photographers and journalists dispatched in the days immediately afterwards to try and cover these events. But what's really interesting, and I mean, there's no debating this, whatever about other debates surrounding the whole story, um, Indian people and Indian uh, press coverage liked to believe that they were, you know, influenced by Indian unrest. They just weren't. And I mean, I, I'm curious about this because I, I, I'm, and I'm wondering if Cecile has gone through any of the material to look for this because I haven't. But you know, there's no reference in any of their accounts. There's maybe one passing line, Brian. You could tell us about that in a minute, where somebody says, you know, obviously we're doing in India. What, uh, what's happening, what British soldiers are doing in Ireland. There's one very faint, vague passing reference. They are not motivated by Indian nationalism on the ground as they would have been expected. Anything, anything in the files along the lines Kate's indicated there? Remember, like, something like that we would have recorded, you know, it's, it's how you retrieve it after that in the search. How yeah. you I don't think there is a seal. Yeah, but I think the only involvement of, like, let's say, the Indian government at least was was for the repatriation of the remains of Delhi. But I don't remember reading anything, anything like that or about it. So, but I'll, I'll, I'll make note of it actually and, uh, and I'll do a search about it. Brian, you want to come in on that? Yeah, the one, the one exception I think to that is, is Stephen Lally's account. Um, Stephen yeah. Lally uh, joined the, was jailed obviously after the mutiny. He's, he's named as a leader in some accounts. And he uh, is serving in the Free State Army in Galway, in Renmore Barracks, as it happens, which the Connacht Rangers would have used as well. And, you know, a significant number of, of the former mutineers end up in, in the, the National Army. But Lally's interesting because he's also secretly working for the IRA in 1924. And he writes an account of the mutiny, which is in the Mostumi papers in the in UCD archives as a result. So it's never been published, and, and the IRA didn't do anything with it either. And what Lally argues... And again, it may need to be taken with a grain of salt because he, he claimed they were in touch with Andy, for example. But he certainly says 
we decided to kill two birds with one stone. And if our little rebellion could spark off a rebellion among the Indians, then that would be a positive thing. Now, in 1924, Lally is identifying with the idea of rebellion in India as well. And he claims there's all sorts of connections, which, again, you know, it's difficult to see if they'd Is stand a, up, but certainly... A rationalisation after the fact. Uh, possibly, but yeah, it's it's yeah. interesting that he does that because, again, this doesn't go anywhere. You know, he doesn't publish a book and, and, and the IRA don't, use, don't make use of this little memoir. But the fact is that Lally does have distinctive Republican sympathies that end up with him joining the, the John, IRA yeah, itself. You want to come in there? Yeah, there's one thing that, that ties into this and it also ties into, like, you know, Kate suggested a perfect storm. And it, like the most recent kind of academic study of the mutinies by a guy called Mario Draper. And uh, he put forward an argument that that's worth maybe thrown in here for a moment. And he emphasized this, his argument was that he emphasizes the fact that this, there are disciplinary problems within the unit, but that these could be found across the post-war British Army as well, um, largely as a consequence of structural tensions to, uh, arising from the post-war demobilization that Brian mentioned. And uh, Draper makes it, in, it's, a, it's a point worth considering in terms of how people actually span it, you know, span or, I suppose, depicted a mutiny. He does suggest that the British had a vested interest in, um, in depicting as a kind of an outburst of republicanism within ranks, because if it was uh, a reflection of disciplinary issues, that didn't reflect very well on the post-war British army. And that in a weird way, according to his line of argument, the British also had a vested interest in kind of, you know, covering up to some degree any disciplinary or internal tensions and emphasising the fact that here was an outbreak of Irish nationalism and republicanism within the army, a once-off but one that didn't necessarily apply to other units within their, within their, their armed forces. And I think that's why Daly had to be executed, really, because, I mean, that was a demonstration of, you know, the British reaction being firm. And I think that's one of the main reasons why he had to die. It was for discipline in India amongst the, the troops, not for anything to do with Irish nationalism. And, I mean, you also bear in mind you have the Gatherite conspiracy in World War One amongst Punjabi soldiers. You know, it's really, really... Again, it's just too close for comfort from a British uh, defence point of view. Yeah. Just before we just to, to wrap up this section, right? Um, now, the, 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 those who well, Daly was executed, obviously, but the the, the guys were released in 1923, and presumably most of them came back to Ireland. Was there any welcome given to them? Did it make any profile in the media? I mean, this is 1923, is after the, the Civil War, presumably. So maybe John or Brian, any idea what the reaction to them was in 1923? Yeah, I mean, there was um, not huge amounts of coverage, but reasonable, reasonably significant coverage of what was happening to them in terms of their jailings and so on in the Irish Bulletin and in Ontoglock, the IRA's journal, during 1921. They, both those um, publications published a letter from Joseph Walsh, who was one of the mutineers who, who gave an account of, of the mutiny and also where they were, you know, they were being sent to prison in Britain by that stage. So... They do make the news, certainly. And the perception is that they had done what they did um, for Ireland. But by that stage, again, there's, you know, a bit of confusion about what's going to happen to them. And and also you've had the the civil war split and and, and people are are, are, um, more worried um, about that. And there's also then, which becomes maybe comes apparent in the pension applications as well. um, There were Irish Republicans, too, who didn't quite you know, accept the bona fides of anybody who joined the British Army after a certain point. You know, the point, I think, possibly Sean McEntee, um, maybe I'm wrong, who who kind of said, well, these men had a choice. You know, some of them joined the British Army in 1918 or even 1919. 
So they could have, you know, they could have joined the Republican movement then. Why did they have to go off to India to have their mutiny when they could have? You know, there is some Republicans who distrust them anyway and who don't necessarily take it for granted that they were always... Um, had the right motivation in terms of, of their mutiny too. Well, listen, that's it, seems have, it, it seems to have Sorry, John, yeah. a lot of power because apparently even Winston Churchill remarked in early 1922 that coming to some kind of um, acceptable resolution of the imprisonment of the Rangers was an essential precondition of dealing with the incoming provisional government. So it seems to have it presumably had some kind of a motive power to exercise the likes of Arthur Griffin and Michael Collins to even bring it up in discussions with the British. Um, but on the other hand, there does seem to be criticism, you know, it's, uh, it's Ernest Blythe remarked rather waspishly about their applications for pensions, that their patriotism was an afterthought. So there's certainly perhaps private scepticism and public acceptance of their motives in some quarters. There were, okay, small, the, there were small welcoming committees in some towns, though, in Cashel, Clare Morris, but that evaporated really quickly and it reverted to kind of a general sense of suspicion amongst local communities about the fact that they essentially were British imperial soldiers and it changed Ireland. The Ireland they left versus the Ireland they returned to were very different. Okay. When did when did they get back? Was it before or after the end of the Civil War? Well, they came back. They they were transferred to England first to to jail in England. Um, and I think was it 1923 they were released. I'm not sure the exact months though. I don't know if Cecile knows. 22 and others in January 23. January, yeah. So the Civil War was still was still ongoing when they came mm-hmm. back. Yeah. Okay, tell you what, guys, I want to I want to wrap up this section and move on then to, to the pensions, which has already come into the, the, the discussion. Uh, so Cecile. Just before we move on to the Connacht Rangers mutineers, I know you've, you've probably done this a million times, right? But just for our listeners, give us a, a quick rundown on what the whole pensions file thing is all about. Because I want to, I want to compare and contrast the approach you know, the, to regular IRA uh, 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 activists and the Connacht Rangers. So give us a rundown of what, what is the pensions uh, uh, the project about itself, first of all. Okay. So the project aims at preserving uh, the the, the I'm going to talk about, preserving those files and making them available. And these are the application, pensions application files lodged by the people who were active from the rising in 1916 to the end of the Civil War. Um, And we have this cohort of men of the the first battalion of the Connaught Rangers within the military service pensions collections, simply because of the legislations that was enacted by the Oireachtas of the Irish Free State. To see, uh, ju- just before you go on to that, just to make it clear here that the, yeah. the, the, the regular pen, the rest of the pensions, not the Connacht Rangers, that it would only be on the basis of vouched for activity. In other words, your, your, your yeah. commanding officer had to vouch. So it was a very bureaucratic, detailed uh, process. And, and we have an article actually in the next issue of History Ireland about some guys who tried to, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, exaggerate. Uh, <laughs> their military record. And it's quite funny, actually, right? But you, you can read that the next issue of History Ireland. So they didn't give out money for old rope, you know, that, that, you, that you had to, to meet certain... Uh, well, they, pretty, they, strict, they you know. To qualify in the first place, you have to qualify. And to qualify, you have to tick certain boxes. So just that, just that is difficult for, for some people to actually, uh, to actually go through. And then you, know you have to explain your activities and you have to provide references from people who, who knew what you were doing, who can corroborate and support your, your, uh, your application. Just before we go into the, the detail of the Connacht Rangers in the, the pension files, uh, maybe I just go to Brian and, and uh, John for this one. Where did the big push for these guys to get pensions come from? Because on the face of it, going back to what you're saying about the fact that the suspicion that they joined the British Army at a, at a relatively late date, et cetera, et cetera. So given the fact that it's a bit of a blowback against them, where does the big shift, uh, the big push come to give these guys pensions? 
Well, see, some of them are going to get pensions anyway because they joined the National Army. Um, right. Either during or after the Civil War, which wasn't an unusual choice for Irish veterans of, of the British Army at the time. There's about 5% of unemployment among war veterans in Ireland, which is one of the attractions of a new army, which could offer you pay. Um, so some of them, I think when you look at their records, they're either serving in the Irish Army or had served in it as well. Um, but James Daly was recognised as a patriot. So I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't stress too much that there was, among Republicans, there would be have been a degree of suspicion. And among people like Ernest Bly and Sean McEntee, who never liked spending money anyway, um, there would have been a degree of reticence about handing out pensions. But among, I think, the general public, there was a sense that the Connacht Rangers had done something for Ireland. It was a big story. You know, it's the only time it's happened, really. So I think that, yeah. I think it's 1936, is it, that the there is a decision to to offer pensions um, or to allow them to, to apply for these. So I think there was a general sense among, you know, um, the public and among even politicians that this is part of the story of Irish independence. The degree to which it should be the same as an IRA volunteer. I mean, remember when Tom Barry applied for a full pension, people objected to that on the basis that he didn't join the IRA until 1919 or 1920 and he'd been in the British Army too. So that's not a, a unique thing to the Connacht Rangers. But I think there's another factor as well, though. They, I mean, they went looking for the pensions themselves, it seems, because by, by virtue of mutiny, they'd forfeited any right for a pension for, for their British Army service. So they needed the money full stop. Right. Sorry, just something here, just before we move on to the, this, the detail of this. Had anti-treaty people gotten their pensions by this stage? I mean, Fianna Fáil and government... Yes, by 1934, there's the first moves to give everybody who... Who'd fought yeah. the pension? So they're, they're they're expanding the number of people mm. who get pensions. Yeah. That, okay, so it, it comes in the wake of that, if you like. I'll tell you what. Maybe I'd like to use to see. Let's just go into detail. Like what what's what's in about two minutes? <laughs> what's in the files? <laughs> Legislation in two minutes. Um, okay. Well, I'll tell you what, Cecilia. Maybe address the question: How did they tailor? Requisites for the Connacht Rangers because obviously they're not the same as regular. Uh, I mean, obviously they're not going to have an IRA commanding officer, for example, to no, vouch for. Of course I mean, not. So do they ask the their British officer to vouch for them? Right? No, I mean, not that to either. Explain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so just to be eligible to be able to apply, you had to have been a member of the first battalion uh, to qualify as a person. You have to have been a member of the first battalion. You have to have been court-martialed under the general court-martial assembly in Dakshai in uh, August 1920. Um, and you have to prove uh, to have your particular of uh, particulars of British Army service. So and you, you have to have been also been sentenced to death or imprisonment and imprisonment for more than 12 months. So there's a lot there. Uh, and the pensions, uh, the, there is provisions as well uh, made for the payment of wounds and disablement pensions. Um, so just to qualify, you have, you know, you have to have been part of the 88 people who had been court-martialed to start with. That, that, that's, the, that's the bottom line. Or to have been a dependent of, of uh, uh, deceased uh, soldiers who were uh, killed during the mutiny. Um, so from the admin file, I can find that 266 uh, applications were lodged under the Act. In Sorry, the can I ask you, how, how, how could there be two of the six, six applications if only 88 guys were court-martialed? Because people were chancing their arm, I suppose. Okay, and okay. It's not only that chancing their arm, I suppose, but you do have people who were there and who were not court-martialed. That's just there. They okay. probably were part of the mutiny, but they were not court-martialed. Or they were court-martialed 
and they were uh, sentenced to less than 12 years, 12 months uh, imprisonment. Or so exonerated. The bar was higher than that. So, how many applications then were successful? Uh, so, in terms of pensions, uh, pensions were awarded to 38 men. 13 okay, so were 38. So, that, so you, that, you know, from the 88 who were court martialed, that's already whittled down. That's, that's more, tiny, that's tiny. Yeah. Pretty stingy. Uh, 13 were awarded gratuities and two received disablement uh, uh, pensions. Um, and then we do have in the files, so you can find a, a really, really interesting material from court martial findings, um, the particulars of British Army of the, uh, the applicants, correspondence. In the correspondence, you do find that pressure uh, uh, of ex convict rangers because they're ex-convicts. They have no discharge papers, uh, they, uh, and they are in very, very poor circumstances. So they do ask for help for employment. They do ask for increase of, of pensions, and, and that keeps on coming. Um, and I wanted to say that there's like really interesting letters in, in the departmental files in terms of pressure to, uh, to afford those, the, the granting of pensions. For example, and it becomes political very, very quickly. Uh, P.G. Uh, Davy, who's uh, uh, writing from the Chartered Accountant's uh, Office, and he's writing to the Department of Defense, and he expresses the view that ex-combat rangers are, and I quote, emphatically of opinion that promises were made by funeral candidates during the last and previous election that if returned to power, they would include the mutineers in a scheme of pensions. So you find that on file as well, and you find a lot of uh, uh, letters from relatives uh, from the moment that the, the rangers are imprisoned for the early release uh, uh, for the, the treatment of their case. And the fact that uh, uh, um, the pressure comes from new uh, new groups like the um, the committee of ex-convict rangers, uh, uh, you know, mid-20s, they start their activities and they kind of try to liken their case to ex-RC members who earn their pensions under under a, a Crown service for pensions. Were paid, which, which were paid by the state. So they try to, to liken their, their, their situation with that. So see, just what sort of money are we talking about here? So like, what would the maximum Connacht Rangers pension be? What would the well, minimum? It's variable, be? but uh, uh, to give you an order, for example, the most extreme case, the main file concerning the uh, award of um, the dependence pension to the father of James Daly, uh, uh, who was uh, um, James Daly, who was executed. So he's, he's basically uh, applying under Section 8, and he will get 10 shillings a week from October 34 to his death, December 43. How does that compare then with, just, with yeah. an average IRA pension? I'm just trying to get that in terms of money, it's what that money small, is worth at that time. Small. you know. It's very small. It's okay. Time. Except you're talking about a very difficult period, like with the, with the Great Depression. I mean, there's nothing stirring economically. So yes. any pension at all, presumably, is, it is makes desperate for It makes a real change. Yeah. Right. I tell you what, Cecile, I just want to just delve deeper into the pensions because very um, interesting stories in here. I mean, my favourite, because we had an article on it a few years ago, is uh, William Coleman, right? Just yeah. just talk to us about it, because absolutely, somebody, this is a movie script, listeners, right? Anyway, Cecile, it's, fill it's, us in on, on William Coleman. I'm hoping he's going to get famous by, by the end of that project, but... Um, He's, a, he's an interesting case, and the file, the file is very fleshy. Uh, he enlists in the British Army in uh, 1916, and uh, like many uh, many others, he's transferred to the Connaught Rangers in 1919. Uh, so he is part of the mutiny. He is court-martialed in, in Dakshai. Uh, he is sentenced to uh, uh, ten, uh, 15 years uh, in prison. 
so he gets sent to uh, to Maidstone and he gets a short pension at the end of it of 10 shillings, again, 10 shillings and six, six pence a week. Um, so there's a lot of correspondence on file. And uh, when you start reading, it looks like uh, William Coleman re-enlists in the British Army at some point and was a prisoner of war in Berlin in 1943. And it's stated that he's uh, repatriated in 45. Then you get a lot of uh, um, uh, notifications from Limerick Prison uh, indicating that William Common was convicted in Galway in 55 for stealing a bike. Uh, and it appears that he has uh, four other convictions, which has an impact on his pensions because you can't get a pension if you're convicting of an, convicted of an offence. So his pension is forfeited uh, and there's no clause of, of restoration of pension in that act. So. Uh, they created a problem for themselves as well there because there's nothing there's nothing there legally. Um, there's a very interesting letter on file, a letter of representation by Deputy Davern in 57. He states that applicant was sentenced to death once in India and a second time uh, uh, in 1940 by the German high command. And then he also states that Coleman was taken prisoner by the Russians. Um, so, so the, the plot thickens there a little bit. That's a new one um, of me. Uh, <laughs> a few days later, another letter issued by Mr. Kilcullen, uh, uh, addressed to the finance officer, expressed the facts that concerning Co uh, the facts concerning Coleman might have been exaggerated. Uh, if it is true that he uh, rejoined the uh, British Army during World War, World War II, it was very doubtful that he was ever sentenced to death by the German under the Geneva Convention regarding prisoner of war, and it was difficult to. See how he could have been a prisoner by a prisoner of the Russians, since, and I quote, it was they who released the prisoner of war in eastern Germany. So it transpires that he also had abandoned wife and children and lived at several addresses around Ireland and, and, and in England. Eventually, his pension was restored in 1961 under the new Connaught Rangers Bill, and he also is successful in claiming for a disability pension in 1960. Well, uh, for his persistence. I tell you what I find interesting about this is that given the fact that, that uh, Davern, you know, this uh, Fianna Fáil TD was lobbying his behalf, Brian, going back to your point, this obviously was a popular cause. In other words, they could get traction out of uh, promoting these guys, even people like Coleman who had blotted his copybook, so to speak, you know? Uh, my, 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 the thing I, I remember most about Coleman is his explanation about why he couldn't collect the pension. Uh, I am otherwise detained, and the, the, the letter has a big, you know, swastika <laughs> stamped on it because it's from, from some prisoner of war camp. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's one of the best illustrations I've ever reproduced in history, Ireland, actually. There's a few it's, other it's, it's, it's not even unique. And I mean, the yeah. thing about the pension files is that a lot of veterans of the revolutionary period end up all over the place, including several people who fought in 1916 who subsequently joined the British Army and who apply for pensions when they're British soldiers. I mean, that, which seems yeah. quite amazing, but it's, you know, there, and which would, would not be, you know, uh, known really, except for the pension files, which really strip away, you know, so many layers of, of what we know about uh, the, the revolutionary period. And John's point earlier on about, you know, the, they, they needed the money. What really comes true with the contract rangers, but a lot of other applicants, of course, is how poor a lot of people were, and particularly yeah. people who'd been in the British Army. The, the average recruit in Ireland, if they weren't an Anglo-Irish officer, tended to be an unskilled working-class man, and those people did need pensions in the 1930s. You know, and you can really see that in in the stories that are being told in their applications. And some, of course, came back and then emigrated to the states. There's yeah. a few harrowing stories from there too. So. Yeah, I mean, were these pensions 
index linked Cecile? I mean, did they, 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 they increase with, did they increase over time or did they stay at the, yes, at the original they, level? they increased over time. There were other acts that came after and people were campaigning for the increase of pensions. But again, like uh, I didn't look at the bill myself for, for today, but um, again, every, any increase is welcome, but I doubt that it was, it was major. Okay, tell you what, I'm just looking at the time, guys. I want to move on to the, the, the third section of our discussion here, which is the, the 1970 repatriations. John, can I come to you on this question? Um, where do, because they, they were sort of in fashion at the time, in the 60s anyway, you had Roger Caseman famously in 1965. So where did the big push for the repatriation of the, the, the Connacht Rangers mutineers come from? Well, there was, a, there was a memorial erected to them at Last Nevin Cemetery in uh, 1949, but as early as 1952, Stephen Lally in particular, who uh, was actually related to Daly, if I'm not mistaken, um, by marriage, began to argue publicly for the repatriation of his body. And this was a call that was taken up by a number of local authorities, you know, like uh, Offaly County Council, Wicklow County Council, a couple of passed resolutions um, seeking that. And the Irish government did begin to make discreet inquiries as to how this might be done. Now, it came up against a couple of legal obstacles here. Uh, one was who owned the actual cemeteries. Was it the Imperial War Graves Commission and their policy wasn't to repatriate uh, the dead? That ultimately turned out the cemeteries had been, uh, had been handed over to the Indian authorities. Then there was British law, which uh, was particularly relevant to the repatriation of Roger Case because the British position was that they, they did not reinter the bodies of those who had been executed for murder, but they reinterpreted their law to uh, exclude people who've been executed for treason for changing completely. And this opened the door to case and being repatriated, which kind of sets the ball in motion because there was a kind of spate of repatriations and attempted repatriations in the aftermath of them, um, in the aftermath of casement. Now, one thing about casement's repatriation that applied to all the rest of them was that on the part of both governments involved, there was a very conscious uh, wariness of the symbolism that went with, went, went with these things. You know, like I said, I mean, both the British and Irish governments wanted to make sure that, you know, they kept control of the narrative to use today's parlance. And given the kind of increasing, I suppose, uh, tension developing in Northern Ireland towards the end of the 60s, the prospect of repatriating dead Republicans became much, much trickier. Um, and there were repatriations of people like, um, say, Donan O'Sullivan, the killers of Sir Henry Wilson, Brian McCormick, the Coventry bombers. But pressure was mounting in the 60s to repatriate daily. And it was something that uh, the Irish government tried to avoid. I mean, uh, they did argue internally, and I've got a quote from the document here, that the official attitude will remain that the government would be unable to undertake repatriation as this could create a precedent and the government could not undertake to repatriate the remains of all who served the cause of Irish freedom and died abroad. The government regarded the repatriation of the remains of Roger Casement as having a symbolic significance which extended to all Irish patriots interred abroad. So there were definite attempts to kind of dodge the issue, but the pressure continued to mount. And it does seem that um, Frank Aiken, as the Minister for External Affairs in particular, um, seemed sympathetic to the cause of bringing back daily, but there was a very acute awareness in the Irish government that this was a this was not going to be as straightforward as a process as the repatriation of casement had been in 1965, and it did not go to a concerted attempts to um, would almost to avoid doing it. You know, one was the argument the argument that you know casement was um, the casement basically spoke for all of those interred overseas. But if you repatriate a casement, why not repatriate daily? And if you repatriate daily, why not repatriate all the rest of them? Um, I mean, one argument put forth was that Daly should be repatriated and only Daly because he had been executed. You know, of the other four who died, of the other three who died in the mutiny, two have been killed during the mutiny, um, and the other had died in prison thereafter. And Miranda, as Kate said earlier on, would have been a Liverpoolian, which ultimately meant that he wasn't repatriated because he wasn't Irish. Um, 
it was easier to deal with though by the late 1960s because by 1964 there was actually an Irish embassy in India. So they were able to send a couple of diplomats up to the cemeteries to check them out and see what When did they start, John? When did the process start? We're just trying to get a, a timeline on this. You know, when was oh, just made to the Indian government? Um, it, it, there were made, there were discrete approaches made in the 50s, but it began to take that far back. Okay. okay. Yeah, but just in, at the level of inquiries. Um, it picked up an earnest in 1967. And it was, there was also a consciousness that the 50th anniversary of the mutiny was coming down the tracks and something, something would have to be, it was going to be marked in some way, shape or form. Uh, and I kind of think it's, it's interesting in a way because the fact that there was so much attention given to vote to the repatriation of James Daly, to me it does suggest that the, the, the Connacht Rangers, it had a resonance, the Connacht Rangers mutiny, that here was something that could be easily publicised, that was strike a chord of people, that people would recognise at the very least. And despite the, um, I mean, the fact that the, the government tried to get, get around it, there was an increase in awareness that, well, you could not do it. I mean, there's no, something had to be done. So they eventually arrived, arrived at a formula um, where essentially they would, in a body from India was going to be an, ex, an expensive process. I was going to say that. Lot of, yeah, uh, you know. business, yeah. And they sent, I mean, they sent, ultimately they also sent back Daly's headstone by ship, which, you know, there's another bill to be paid for that. But there was, I mean, when they looked at the cemeteries, um, they kind of realised that the cemeteries were in bad condition. You know, these were uh, cemeteries in which there wouldn't have been, there was no military presence anymore. The Christian community would have been, you know, very, very thin on the ground. And they weren't used. They were quite dilapidated. I mean, uh, there, was a, there was a cattle path near Daly's grave. And they weren't sure. Initially, it was suggested, could perhaps, um, could you pay someone local to just look after the graves and tend them? It was seen that was impractical. So ultimately, a decision was made to uh, repatriate Daly and Daly alone. Now, the formula they come up with was that the Irish government would facilitate the transfer, the repatriation of the transfer of the body as till it got to Dublin, and then somebody else would take care of the funeral, and that somebody else would have the National Graves Association. Now, when it came to repatriating the other mutineers, uh, Sears and Smith, two, two others who were killed in the mutiny, um, the government tried to get out that hook as well by arguing that, well, you know, Daly's the only one whose family have made any approaches. Because, I mean, Daly had grown up in Tyrrell's past and still had a sister living there in Westmeath. So the family had approached had approached him. Um, now, the National Grave Association got around that by contacting the families of the other two, you know, Sears and Smith, and getting them to make a case for the repatriation of their bodies. And eventually, by 1969, the government there relented because it took the view that, you know, you could bring back Daly, but then the NGA were just going to pest you to bring back the other two, you know, ad nauseum. So you might as well just get it all, get it all done and won't go. Um, the mutiny, the centenary mutiny, obviously falls in um, falls in June. Catch with that is that the monsoon season could make getting to the cemeteries very, very difficult, if not impossible. So, a decision was made that why not focus on to make daily the focal point, make day the anniversary of Daly's death the um, the nearest that would become the only kind of official marking of um, of the mutiny. It would also make it easier to get the, get the bodies, you know, disinterred. And there's some fascinating files in the in the National Archives. You know, the accounts of actually. You know, digging up the bodies. You know, of, um, of transport and commissioning an undertaker, and the body and the bodies were flown back to Dublin via London, where they reposed in them um, in Merchant's Key before funerals took place on the first November, nineteen seventy, which was a Sunday. Daly was executed the second November. What is interesting, the the extent to which they looked at the presence of doing this to avoid any prospect of um prospect of kind of how do you say content any bones of contention to pardon the expression. Uh, they looked at the protocol and procedures for, say, the, the, the reinterments and exhumations of um, Barnes and McCormick and how they were dealt with in Dublin. There was concern that, um, you know, I mean, Daly was going to be buried in Tyrrell's past from the outset. The other two, Sears and Smith, would be interred in Glasnevin. And there were even concerns about the route the cortege might take up to Glasnevin because 
if it went through FIPS for it, which it ultimately did, that was fine. If it went past the GPO, where are you going to have the flag of the GPO at half-mast in 1970 against the backdrop of the Troubles? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to commemorate, you know, two people who will be seen as Republican martyrs. And the, the government did seem to take the view that essentially there was no way of getting around, they, they had to do something, but there was no way of getting around the fact that you were essentially going to facilitate a Republican rally in the Midlands, which is what the funerals were, or at least the funeral daily. So there's a whole there's a whole range of issues around it, but the key thing is repatriating a dead Republican in 1970 was a hell of a lot more tricky than repatriating one in 1965. So the case, the precedent set by Casement was a precedent that kind of, you know... has not fly anymore. Debate. It wasn't. It, it was in no yeah. way, and you know, they definitely saw the potential of a trouble that something like this could. could Brian, maybe you you've written about this period now. So, uh, how how big a factor was the, the 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 Northern Ireland situation on on what we're talking about? Yeah, well, of course, there's a competition for who do these you know who commemorates and what the men's debts symbolised. So, of course, there is the the case made about Casement was that he represented the entire Irish nation, 1916, and so on. Um, Dunn and Sullivan in 1967, the assassins of, of Sir Henry Wilson. Again, that that happened, you know, in a messy period during the truce, but they were both IRA volunteers and, in fact, both British Army veterans as well. And there, I mean, there's nothing more symbolic about the time. It's that the Longford, Longford-born Unionist chief of the British General Staff being shot dead by two London Irishmen who'd served in the First World War, you know. Um, but that occurred during the War of Independence period. Now, Barnes and McCormack, was part of the bombing campaign of 1939. So that was always the Republican movements. The, the government were never going to have anything to do with that. But it was still a big occasion. You know, so 10,000 people turned out in, in July 1969 uh, for, for that um, event near Mullingar. So I think the government were keenly aware that patriots being returned from, 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 uh, from abroad, particularly from Britain, would still mobilise large amounts of people. And I think that's why they were worried about who would control it. Now, ultimately... The final events, I think, um, in Terrell's Pass were effectively controlled by the Provisional Republican Movement because the IRA had had split by by that stage. And they are presenting it, of course, as part of one struggle, that what Daly was fighting for in 1920, a free Ireland, was what they were fighting for in in 1970. So, of course, as, as John pointed out, this becomes very problematic for a lot of people. But also, again, it did have popular traction because a lot of people would have attended the the the, the Daly uh Reinterment, who would have just wanted to express solidarity with the idea of an Irish man executed thousands of miles away because of his um, patriotism. Yeah, I mean, John, just before you come in, I just want to yeah. bring Cecile in here. Cecile, does the reinterments feature in the in the the pensions files? I mean, are the files continue? Are they augmented? Very likely, there are mentions for the uh, repatriation of um, James Daly in, in a couple of departmental files and a little bit in his own file, well, his father's applications file. Uh, and the earliest uh, uh, conf- uh, correspondence I could find was back to February 65 regarding the inquiry of the Minister for External Affairs approaching the government of India. So it's a, it's a small amount of stuff. Yeah, and the most probably interesting is in the file. Uh, the file is actually primarily dealing with the funeral and the burial of Roger Casement, but there are a handful of documents regarding Daly, and it's more about the debate that um, surrounds the uh, military involvement and the level of military involvement, if at all, in the dedication of a memorial at Ballymore in August 71. And it was actually decided at the end by the Taoiseach that there'd be no military involvement whatsoever. Um, Sorry, John, you wanted to come in? No, there was a broad cross-section of people at the funeral. I mean, um, 
I mean, the cortege was led by an ITG, uh, you know, an ITGW band. Uh, there were priests from all across the county. You know, um, it seemed to garner a good deal of public sympathy. Now, it was addressed for the, you know, the, the procession was a great, or the, the event was addressed by Rory O'Brodick. There was a firing party over Daly's grave later on. Um, but there was kind of there was one defence force representative present at the personal request of Vaim de Valera, who was represented. But it did um, much as it was kind of dominated by republicanism, it did command a broad a broad sway of support. You know, like about six thousand people turned up in Terrell's Pass, which is a small village. You know, yeah. um, so there was definitely interest in reinterring Daly. Kate, can I just bring you? We just go just go to go back to India, right? Um, how much of a, of, of a splash did, did the repatriations make in India at that time? And and, and 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 my next question is, you know, has the conduct mutiny had, you know, has it featured? I know it's a huge country, but has yeah, it but left to, any trace today? Just to go back to the reinterments, that it, there was almost a reverse. There was a lot of interest at the time in India when the mutiny had happened in the immediate aftermath, and then uh, here. Uh, there's huge interest in the uh, reinterments, but in India, less so. But what I think is interesting, just to go back to a point that John mentioned, is in, in terms of the repatriation outside of the Irish political context, bear in mind that this had happened only within 10 and 15 years of Indian independence. So there was an independent Indian government to approach, and I think that's significant. And indeed, when they did approach them, obviously they had to navigate, you know, dealing with the the, um, the British Graves Association who then managed it and whatnot. But there, there are kind of little subtle political angles to that too. And then as well, bear in mind, this is post-independent partitioned India. So there's a much more renewed interest here in Ireland, in India, on the Republican, uh, from a Republican perspective, uh, and, and the kind of symbolism that was all attached to that. Um, but, and just on the tally of the dead, and that, which I find really fascinating, I remember James reading somewhere that James Daly's sister had said something in the wake of Roger Casement's um, repatriation of his remains, you know, is, I'm very disappointed, is, is one man not as good as another? And all I could think about was John Miranda, who's still lying there in Dagshai Cemetery with nobody tending his grave. I mean, it's an incredibly remote place in the hills in India that was overgrown, really, really uh, incredible place. And nobody, I bet the, the Irish government was <coughs> holding their fingers crossed, hoping that no family member of John Miranda would come to the fore. So I, I believe he was possibly a Spanish father and an Irish Liverpudlian mother. So, I mean, that's a whole other, it's important to focus in on some of the other stories that are less well known and hadn't been appropriated. But um, insofar as how it was remembered, uh, Tommy, or at that time, little coverage at the time, to the best of my knowledge, in, in India, but I didn't, you know, go through any of the newspapers in great detail, I must confess, in advance of today. But it, it's remembered in um, kind of, uh, you know, writing, plays, ballads. We'd all be familiar with probably the worst version, which would be the Wolf Tones, Connacht Rangers, you know, uh, you know, the most overt uh, political appropriation of that story, I think, and probably one of the worst ballads I've ever had to sit through and listen to, if you want to have a go after the Hedge School, by all means, it's on YouTube. But some really interesting plays, one, um, Vincent, uh, or uh, Glyn Jones, who was a South African playwright, had a, a play running in the Old Vic in 1979, and it was called The 88, about the comic Rangers, and it coincided with Mountbatten's death. So can you imagine? You know, so uh, the critics absolutely slated it, but the audience loved it. But he didn't write another play for 10 years afterwards. It was He was so traumatised, apparently, by the experience. And, and then you have in uh, the 90s, an Irish playwright, John Kavanagh, had a, had a play called No Comment Scene. And I believe that was going to be reshown um, this spring. But unfortunately, because of the COVID crisis, it, it, it hasn't been. Um, 
But my favourite, most recent uh, kind of uh, depiction of it is actually a piece of historical fiction by um, by an uh, an Indian lady who's based here in Ireland for the last 30 or so years called Kovri Madhavan, and it's called A Tainted. And even though it's a piece of fiction, in a very strange way, it, it really covers the very complex kind of dichotomy between various identities uh, amongst the Irish soldiers that were serving there, the personal stories, um, she she calls them the she changed the name to the Kildare Rangers, you know. But it's very clear that that's what she's depicting. She brings it into the 1980s and then ties it up with the Anglo-Indian community and kind of there's this parallel story of how both the Irish soldiers who served in India and the Anglo-Indian community how they have this parallel, very difficult and marginalised um, lives in both countries. And, and I just thought it was very evocative, beautiful retelling in a very different and unique way of the Connacht Rangers story. Um, so, they, they, so they still have a faint, a faint trace. Oh, okay. definitely, yeah, yeah. Brian, did you want to come in on that? No, I, I suppose I just wanted to, to say, I mean, uh, India loomed very large at the time in Ireland in 1920, 1921. And Sean T. O'Kelly, when the Irish Republicans went to the United States, for example, the Indians were among the people they interacted with. And, and Sean T. O'Kelly's argument at the time was that the Irish owed India a great debt uh, a great debt because was it not true Irish muscles and brains that India was largely subdued? And he said we should be ashamed of what the Connacht Rangers and the Munster Fusiliers and the Dublin Fusiliers and, and so on had done in India. And I think the, the, the Rangers mutiny is fascinating, but a year after that in 1921, the Leinster Regiment are fighting their last campaign and it's in southwest India during the Malabar Rebellion. A guy called Terry Dunn is doing a lot of work on that. So the overwhelming you know, um, impact of the Irish in India was as part of a colonising regime mm-hmm. rather than as rebels mm-hmm. and and whereas I'd like to identify with the rebels that's far from the whole story and I think we need to be aware mm-hmm. of that when we look at what Irish involvement in the empire was well, all about. Absolutely so, Brian that, that that liaison with revolutionary figures happened outside of India in immigrant communities both in the yeah. UK and America not in India itself absolutely not you're right. Yeah. John? This brings to mind as um, a veteran of the Connacht Rangers I forget his name but I was quoted by the historian Michael Silvestri and uh, it's kind of a waspish comment, but he makes the, you know, the irony that essentially the Connacht Rangers were mutinying and protest at the activities of the Black and Tans, which were essentially mutinying against what was being done against, let me rephrase this, they're mutinying in protest of Black and Tan actions, which were essentially the same as what they have been doing to the Indians for a couple of decades. I mean, they had a reputation as um, a kind of brutal regiment, you know, and when we're, when we're emphasising the kind of... Uh, you know, the significance and the role of the Irish within the empire, we have to look and you know, what I mean, what exactly were those Irish soldiers doing on the ground in India? I mean, they weren't they weren't tending graves or tending gardens. These were this was a military force. Mm-hmm. In a way, and I think this kind of ties into how we uh, how we remember or commemorate these things. You know, they have to look at these rough edges as well. I mean, um, just but I mean, you can look at the Irish in, in the British Army within the empire as proof of the complexity of Irish history. But does that is that is that not also um, an indication of the of certain Irish people being complicit in not just the administration, uh, but the enforcement of imperial rule throughout the empire. And that's something that doesn't necessarily lead itself to um, happy conclusions. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking of the monument in, in um, Last Nevin, and in the light of Black Lives Matter, the, the whole uh, thing that's happening worldwide. I mean, would there be moves to take that monument down? There's a question. In other words, like for their complicity in, in British imperialism in India. I mean, you know, I tell you what, I, I actually I just want to move on. I just want to finish off the discussion here on that, uh, just sticking on the on the, the phenomenon of re right? Uh, 
because whatever about 1970, by 1976, when poor old Frank Stagg was buried several times, you know, this thing of reinterment had a completely different context, Brian. Yeah, of course. And But again, the context is, you know, of a, a modern Republican campaign and, and an Irish government claiming that, that this firstly had nothing to do with them and was implicitly, you know, uh, against the wishes, not just of the government, but the Irish people. And that they weren't, in, in 1974, Michael Gaughan had died after a very long hunger strike in Britain. His body was returned and was a major, saw a major display of, of, of Republican strength. In fact, um, the body was brought through Dublin again, through O'Connell Street, uh, and brought down to Mayo. And the coalition government in 1976 were determined that this wouldn't be allowed to happen again. And they exploited divisions within the Stagg family and so on to, as you say, carry out one burial under massive army and guard of protection and then the republican movement carried out another one uh, a few months later so you can't divorce these things from the context and a hundred years on there's you know a fairly comfortable context in discussing what seems to be uh, uh, a good story of irish men rebelling because of their the oppression of their country uh, people in uh, in india but actually at the particular moment these things happen they're a lot more complex and uh, a lot more fraught what about, I mean, just in terms of um, repatriation, right? I mean, it, this has come up again now in relation to uh, Red Hugh O'Donnell. Uh, if, that's if they find the body, right? They're, they're looking in this church in, uh, in Spain. Uh, what's the panel's view on that? Should, should, should he be brought back or should he be left to rest in peace? As, as a former early modern historian, I say <laughs> they want to be buried in Spain. And, you know, it's a concrete indication of the links that early modern art had with continental Europe. I mean, it's not the only one by any means, but I would think it's more, um, it, I mean, if you just bring him back here in a chair, what's, uh, what, why? You know, I think, yeah, I think you would, you would learn far more from the life of Red Hugh O'Donnell believing in him in Spain. Hmm. Anyway, as a view on that, I mean, it is, is, is our discussion linked even peripherally with the, with the, with the, the present um, issue well, of, one, of, one of thing imperial, one, imperial one, monuments? I mean, one little caveat here, Dr. Tommy. Red Hugh O'Donnell isn't necessarily a good example because he doesn't come with kind of baggage or other money. Or other sure, sure. Kate, do you want to come in? I think the more contemporary the commemorative uh, event and or body and or statue, the more linked it is to contemporary politics and the more difficult it is to separate them both. But I think there's an interesting tale when you look at this current statue's argument. I mean, well, you know, the roads must fall has been going on for years. And I think that's important to point out outside of the context of the Colston statue, which your listeners, whenever you're listening to this, only happened a couple of weeks ago. It was taken down in Bristol. But from a British imperial context, right after independence, um, in especially in Delhi and Kolkata, Calcutta Arena in Kolkata, they did take down all of the British imperial statues. And they didn't pull them down. It was an organized effort. And they relocated them. And in Delhi's case, they were relocated into a derelict place called Coronation Park, which was um, originally uh, built for the 1911 Delhi Durbar. I, like, I don't know, like some of those expo or sports stadium places that are built in great gusto and then they're just tumbleweed after a few years later. So something similar happened in, in Delhi. So that's where they decided to move all the statues, just take them down slowly but surely and relocate them there. And then in Kolkata, they put them in a, a place called Flagstaff House Gardens. And recently they're, they're trying to um, actually fund and make them into a tourist attraction. Sort of a rogue gallery of, of yeah. monuments. Yeah, but my personal <laughs> take on, on some of these recent discussions and events is that if as much energy was actually, especially in the UK, was actually 
foisted onto the teaching of British imperial history in schools yeah. as it is to the coverage of what's going on on the streets, it would be of much more value. So I think what they're doing in India is actually really a, a, a kind of an interesting kind of story is that you can there is an educational piece there they didn't destroy them they didn't you know they put them somewhere else and they might turn them into a, a money-making tourist industry opportunity as well so it's a win-win for everyone right you learn you, you pay your few bob but um I, and as well I think it, that didn't happen in all the cities and in in Kolkata in particular there was a certain amount of backlash at the time from the local community you said well why would you be getting rid of them and they replaced them with really gaudy uh, sculptures and statues, really bad art of uh, uh, crude depictions of Indian nationalists. That I think, I think from an aesthetic point of view, they disagreed as well, you know. But uh, but you know, there's a there's a tale there, I think. And of course, the local uh, uh, airport there is is named after Chandra Bose, yeah, collaborated yeah. with the, with the Nazis. Yes, yeah, so um, airport renaming is a whole other. It's a whole, it's, it's a minefield. Yeah, I yeah. tell you what, just going back to the question of what to do with with old statues, I, my my favourite approach is Charlie Hawes. Uh, there was that famous, uh, very very ugly statue of Queen Victoria, which stood on the the lawn of Leinster House, which was stuck in storage for years, and Charlie tongue very much in cheek, presented it as a gift to the people of Australia sometime in the late 1980s. Yeah, and uh, they did that in India too. Some went to Australia and New Zealand. They gifted them. Yes, so yeah. it's recycling. Yeah. Right. Listen, guys, I think, I think we've, we've, uh, we've, we've, gone, we've uh, gone through this discussion uh, from, from every angle. And it's very clear that this whole question of repatriation, remembering, putting up statues, taking down statues, uh, is still very much uh, in the public domain and, and histor historians, we should all be very thankful for that, I suppose. So listen, uh, I'd just like to, to, to thank everybody here today, uh, Brian Hanley, uh, John Gibney, uh, Kate O'Malley, and uh, Cecile Gordon. Uh, and thank you, the listeners, for, for tuning in. Uh, and remember, our next uh, online head school will be on Rebel Cork, Crucible of the War of Independence. And I hope uh, you'll, you'll listen in for that one. So thank you very much. And I hope you, you, you'll be with us for the next head school. Thank you very much.